Welcome, everyone, to All I Know Is This, a special new podcast from First Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Amy Star Redwine, and I am the pastor and head of staff here at the church. And I am truly delighted today to uh, be doing a distance podcast. This is our first uh, with the Reverend Pam Drizel, who is joining us from Atlanta. Welcome, Pam. Amy, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be doing this with you. I've listened to your other podcast, and uh, like I told you, you sound like a, a real pro, so I'm excited <laughs> to be a part of it. Well, thank you, and we're so excited to have you coming in just a couple of weeks to join us as our Carson lecturer for our winter gathering. Register while you still can, fpcrichmond.org slash gathering. It's going to be a great weekend, and I'm excited to dive into some of the topics about discipleship and some other things. But Pam, I'd like to give you a chance just to introduce yourself a little bit. I think this podcast is a great way for folks to start to get to know you before you come. So maybe, um, I think I shared in our first episode that our paths have crossed several times um, in my life since you were a young life leader when I was in high school in Roanoke and then a year overlap in seminary and now in a pastor's group together. But why don't I would love to hear you just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today. Well, uh, thanks, Amy. It has, I think our journey is so interesting because we've known each other at these vastly different phases of our lives. And it's been so great to reconnect with you in ministry in the church. So I don't know where you want me to start. I was born, no, I'm just kidding, (laughs) um, but I was born in Davidson, North Carolina, baptized at Davidson College Presbyterian Church. Uh, Then we moved to the suburbs of DC. And I, as a, as a young person, just did not connect with the church at all. I Mm. felt uh, that the church was irrelevant and, and really just a bother. Um, and Fortunately, there was a young life leader at my high school who reached out to me and really uh, loved me and built a friendship. And I got involved with young life. And in terms of my faith development, uh, I I still say that, um, you know, on a young life week, I had what I would still call a conversion experience. Um, and although throughout my life, I've reinterpreted that experience in a number of different ways at its heart, uh the, the sense that the love of God is known in Jesus Christ was what was the compelling heart of that experience and that that love really reorients everything. It changes how I see myself as a person, as a daughter, as a friend, uh, as a person seeking vocational direction. And so, um, you know, that, that really changed everything for me, that conversion experience at a Young Life camp when I was 17 years old. And I would say, you know, there's a great, um, I, I'm a big fan of Rainier Maria Rilke, who uh, has a line in his book, Letters to a Young Poet, you must dig deep and find your I must. And hmm. I think it was in that moment uh, when I was 17 that I I felt that sense of I must, I must receive this love, I must seek to understand it more fully, I must share it with others. And so in a sense, that was also the beginning of my call to ministry. Wow. So I, I just have to share that the the line from that book of Rilke that has resonated with me since I wrote my 
um, senior college religion thesis on questions in the Gospel of Mark is that you must live into the questions. Yes. Um, So, yeah, that's... And that that quote starts with a great line to be patient with all that is unresolved in your heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I need to remember that part of it. Um, Yeah. So then how did you come to end up in seminary and really decide that your call was not just to reach adolescence the way somebody reached you, but to be in the church. And I don't think I knew that about church not being at all interesting to you before (laughs) (laughs) before you had your conversion. Yes, exactly. So, um, gosh, this is kind of a long story, but uh, let's see if I can uh, tell it in a succinct way, not my normal gift. But um, <laughs> uh, so in seminary, I would say that in addition, well, my my paperwork for Young Life when I left for seminary was educational leave of absence. And I mm-hmm. had every intention of going back to Young Life. But in seminary, I would say I felt kind of the thumb of God in my back really pushing me uh, towards the church. And, you know, I think people... Uh, criticized, quote, organized religion. And I was one of those critics. Uh, and I, I now say, you know, what would you rather have unorganized religion, but, um, (laughs) which, or, or I say, you call this organized. Um, but, uh, the, you know, people organize and institutions happen because we're human and we want to, uh, to make our, our groups and our gatherings more effective. And so, um, I, I just really felt like I needed to move my ministry into the church. I also felt a very strong call to connect the generations uh, in focus in young life. I was so focused on one part of a person's life and that longing to have ministry with people throughout their lifespan uh, was was really strong. And, you know, I I now I just feel so committed to the church with all its flaws and with all its problems one of my favorite definitions of the church is that it's the union of those who love in service to those who suffer. Oh, and that's really good. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And I, I just really believe in the transformative power of faith communities to, to work together, not only to transform the lives of individuals who incidentally, that's how the world is transformed by transformed individuals, but also as a community uh, to, to, mobilize our resources and our energies to work together for a more just and joyful and generous world. And so I, I love the church and, Mm. um, and that's where God's called me and that's where I've committed myself. Well, I love that description of the church. That is really beautiful and really just so excited to get you with the first Presbyterian community. Um, Pam, before we we pivot to some of our discipleship conversation, I'm sure people here would be very interested to know uh, that you are the daughter of uh, someone who's kind of famous. You want to tell <laughs> well, us about your yes, dad? <laughs> if you're a basketball fan and you're over a certain age, then you might know uh, of Lefty Drizel, who uh, has been my father since the day I was born. Aww. And he is, uh, he is fantastic. And I'm so proud of him. Last year, he was inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. And that oh, was a huge awesome. deal for our family. Yeah. And, uh, and my dad uh, has 
been, of course, one of the most formative people in my life. I often say the the Rilke quote, the I must, uh, although my dad wouldn't know Rilke from, you know, a hole in the wall, but <laughs> he, uh, he really embodied that. He knew his I must and he mm-hmm. lived it. And uh, that was really formative for me. And he passed on some base basketball talent to your sons, I think, right? Oh, to my sons, yes. Not to, I, was, I thought you were going to say to me. No, he passed on none of it to me. Um, uh, Sometimes did, things yeah. skip a generation. So. <laughs> exactly. My, um, my oldest son is a college basketball coach. Uh-huh. Uh, he coaches at Jacksonville State University and, and, uh, and has, has it in his blood. He loves it. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, as you and I have talked about as we've prepared for our winter gathering, what we really had in mind when we came up with this theme, all I know is this, speaking from the heart about life's big questions, is an authentic conversation about discipleship. So I would love to hear from you what discipleship means to you, how you understand it. So I, I want to just say that I love that you're using the word discipleship because uh, I think I'm, I'm on a, uh, a big kick to upcycle Christian words. I think sometimes <laughs> when certain words get loaded with cultural baggage that we just ditch the word and uh, and try to find new ways of saying it, which I also think is important. But I love uh, recapturing mm-hmm. uh, some of the the really wonderful Christian words, and uh, discipleship is one of them. And you know, it really actually means student or learner. And so, for me, discipleship is about having a posture of openness and receptivity, and a a constant desire to and openness to learning, and and being a lifelong student. Uh, that that's really what it means to me, that kind of receptivity. Uh, It's knowing that uh, there is always more to learn that, you know, at the end of memorial services, uh, I, when we do the, um, the commendation. That's my favorite part of it. Oh, don't you love it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, And that phrase that, that I use, you know, God, we are mortals. You alone are immortal. We are finite. You alone are infinite. We are creatures. You alone are creator, which just that is this posture, I think, of a disciple is to know that and to know that there is always more to learn, always more to to discover about um, who God is and who we are in relation to God. Uh, You know, one of the when you asked me this question about discipleship. One of the people I think about um, is Hal Adams, an an 88-year-old man who was uh, just a pillar at Trinity Church. And uh, recently I had a conversation with him and he said, you know, in my twilight years, Pam, I'm, I'm so happy because I can focus all my energies on deepening my relationships. And wow. I'm learning so much. Can you imagine? I wow. mean, it was so beautiful. But that to me is discipleship, right? So yeah. you never outgrow it. You're you're always yeah. open to learning. Well, I really love that definition. That's um, a, a spin I don't think I had thought of. And uh, it's one of the things that I've done in my ministry that a mentor uh, recommended, and I'm so grateful I took this advice, was to have a weekly Bible study. So it's something I've been doing for a long time now in every church I've served. And um, 
today we were talking about the John 9 passage that's going to be the focus of your talks and your sermon on our gathering weekend. And um, I am just so appreciative of the people who, who show up for a, you know, 1215 Bible study on Wednesdays and um, are wanting to kind of dig deep and learn and it really, I always say, it just does my pastor's heart good that people want to yes. show up and read the Bible and talk about it and ask questions about it. And and that kind of posture of lifelong learning is so important. Yes. Um, so tell us about a, a theological concept that you picked up in childhood that has endured for you into adulthood. Yeah. So, you know, I would say that I would go back to that moment of conversion I I talked about. um, And that is the concept that God is love. And here's the thing, that doesn't mean God is love as we understand love. What it means is that love is bigger than anything we can understand and that we are always students of what it means to be a loving person, what it means to uh, embody love in our lives, in our world. And, you know, I think it's Pascal who had that saying, you know, love has its reasons that reason knows not. And um, I I just think that is, which doesn't mean, again, that love is anti-intellectual or anti-reason. It means that love transcends reason and intellect and that it is more holistic than that. And that concept just never goes away. I mean, really, recently I had this really, this is probably too much information, but recently I had a dream that I was in an airplane that was crashing and mm-hmm. uh, with my youngest son. But the, in the dream, I turn to him and I say, love is all there is. Oh. And like, that is it, right? That That is it. That, that's all there is. That's our reason for being. It's it's God's reason for creation. It's, it's everything. And it is infinitely um, deep and wide. So we are always learning to love. Yeah. And to trust in it. So if someone had asked me, my answer to that question would have been, that God is love. And I had on my childhood dresser, like the mirror that's attached to the dresser, I had put in stickers, God is love. And mm. I, and, but you just articulated so much better than I ever could sort of the bigger concept behind that, because I think you're so right that it's not um, well, I, I mean, I'm not going to try to say it because you just said it so well, but um, <laughs> I do. And I remember, you know, in seminary when we had to write a paper about our our call story or or whatever they they called it. Um, I remember writing about that because just it was so clear to me that it was like my childhood self knew something that I didn't really know or understand, <laughs> but I knew it was yeah. true, and right. and that 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 was going to be end up being something that um, I was, I think I'm going to spend my life trying to figure out exactly what that means. And I have had that dream. Have you? It's like, yes, I'm not in an airplane, but I'm in a car and the car is like driving on one of those crazy California cliff roads. Yeah. And then suddenly goes off the cliff and 
I'm in the car with the people I love, and I think, well, that's it's okay. The, this is oh this my is gosh. all there is. I, mean, I don't know if I've I turned well, we into need, that. We need some oh, and therapy. I think we do <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But, you know, the, the the thing about it is, it's it's kind of like when you ask that question. There is an impulse that says, oh, God is love is just, that's too simple of an answer, Mm -hmm. you know? But the thing is, I think that our concepts of love are often so sentimentalized or, uh, you know, trivialized and man, that, that's it. God is love. That's it. And Mm -hmm. so again, that doesn't mean it's love as we understand it. It means love is so much bigger than we can understand. Yes, and that love, the love that we know and experience, that is God. You know, yes. that, that is an experience of the divine. Okay, so how about an, an unresolved theological question that, you know, haunts you? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I thought about this. You gave us the questions in advance, and I thought about this. And I, I want to say, first of all, they're all unresolved in some ways. Mm, so um, sure. I think the the nature of being uh, a Christian in the reformed way of being Christian is that we know that all of these things that we say and 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 believe are provisional, right? That that certainty is not faith. That certainty is actually uh, the opposite of faith. That faith is being willing to say, you know, I I I take a stand here, but I'm also always again that open and that receptivity to, um, I could be getting it wrong and I got to be open to that. Mm-hmm. But I would say, um, I, I thought about two things actually. One is atonement, the atonement theory. What, what does the cross really mean? Mm-hmm. And I think there's been, um, I, I think it's Brian McLaren who talks about, you know, we, we have to move from a violent God of domination, uh, to a nonviolent God of liberation. Mm-hmm. And I think in many ways, our understanding of the cross historically has um, contributed to a a vision of a violent God of domination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is this notion that, you know, the cross is God punishing Jesus. Mm. And, uh, and I just, not just not just God punishing Jesus, but God punishing Jesus when God should be punishing us. Yeah, because right. God's super mad at us. Right, and, right. Yeah, and and because God's mad, God has to punish somebody and hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that's been a really pernicious uh, teaching that has has really uh, distorted our sense of who God is and, and what the cross means. Now, that being said, I took an entire semester on the atonement at um, – Princeton and still came away saying, I'm not sure I can explain this to my six-year-old in a way that, you know, so it's deep and it's complicated. And, uh, I think the atonement is, is a great mystery. Um, and in many ways, I, I, I always say every like perplexing thing, if you keep digging, digging, digging where you land is theodicy. I think one of your other Mm -hmm. interviewers said that, but you know, it's about suffering and, um, evil and the, you know, the, so, um, so that's one. But the other one I want to want to talk about if if there's time. Do we have time? For- well, yeah, we do. I just I do want to say I'm I'm really glad you brought up um, the atonement and the cross because I think that is a huge. Uh, it's just really complicated, 
I, it was so helpful for me. And I don't know that I really learned this at Princeton. I think it was later, although maybe I just learned it and forgot it um, entirely possible. But that so early in the theology of the church, there was an expansive view of the cross. It wasn't yeah. just substitutionary atonement. And somehow, and you know, I'm not enough of a scholar of the history of theology to know exactly when and how this happened, but but we really doubled down on that as yes. our understanding of the cross. And it, you know, it's it's been more expansive for two thousand years. And I think in the church we really need to reclaim that. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm grateful. I, I think that's that's so right, Amy. And and it is reclaiming something. It's not like we're throwing out the whole tradition. There is in the tradition right. uh, different ways of understanding the cross. And and it's I think those that we've got to uh, dig a little deeper into. Yeah. Okay. So what's but your the, other the one? other thing? My other thing is. Um, is this, uh, you know, Paul talks about in Romans, you know, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the good I know I should do. And uh, I think, you know, the, what, what is the nature of sin? And again, that's another word we've kind of wanted to boot out because it, you know, reminds us of, uh, you How know, bad people, we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, we've, we've used words like brokenness, which I, I do too. And I think, um, is a, is a very good, wholesome way to understand sin. It is broken. It's broken relationships. It's a broken sense of self, a broken relationship with God and with others. But I think, um, you know, what, what is really the nature of, of sin and how do we understand it in our own lives and, you know, both systemically in the larger culture and larger world. Um, and how do we, I, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, I'm a big fan of, um, gosh, I just forgot his name. The Jesus, I meeting Jesus again for the first time. Oh, Marcus Borg. Yes. Borg, yes. Yeah. And, and one of my, one of my, uh, one of my problems with Borg is he wants to throw out the confession. He thinks it's too negative, you know, mm -hmm. in corporate worship. Um, and I couldn't agree. I couldn't disagree anymore. Uh, I think we all know inherently that like we, we misuse our freedom. We, uh, we have, we are broken and we, we do have um, issues doing the things we know we want to do and not doing the good that, that we know we can do. Um, yeah, absolutely. Doing so uh, anyway, I think, you know, how, how do we understand that and how do we uh, address it and, uh, and continuously again and again, seek that honesty before God and others that can really uh, heal us well, I'm so glad you bring you bring up another huge theological concept of sin. But I mean, that is such a, a prominent one in the John nine text that we're going to be dealing yes. with at the gathering, and and what sin is, and and what it um, what it means, and you know, does it have any relation to uh, other things in our lives like illness or suffering, or um, and how does God work? I mean, these are all questions clearly raised by that text. So I look forward to um, working through that with you. Before we bring this to a close, is there anything that, um, you know, you you want to uh, share as any kind of preview or? Well, I, I as I said, it's been so fun to, for me personally, to dig deep into that passage. And, um, you know, Calvin says, preachers just 
they sit before the word and let the word penetrate them and change them. And then they proclaim that to the people gathered. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to do that. But the, the passage has really been speaking to me and it's so rich. You know, the gospel of John is just so layered, you know, every, everything has like multiple meanings. meanings. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I was noticing today that passage is so it's complex. And I, I was thinking, I don't know that I've ever preached on it because for one thing, which part of it do you read? And then the story's a lot to retell. It's hard to situate people in that passage. Um, it, so. it really is. So that's my challenge for the weekend. But I guess I would say uh, to those who are coming, or even if you're not coming and you're just going to be in worship on Sunday, read the passage. Yeah, uh, yeah. And really um, try to find where uh, it is the word for you. And that's John 9. It's the whole chapter verses one through 41. So it's not going to take that long to read, but, um, but yeah, that's a, that's great advice for folks to, to take a look at it. Um, well, I truly could not be more excited for you to join us here and know it will be a really rich time together. And this has been so fun. Thank you for it being has willing. Been fun, Amy. <laughs> I'm so excited to come. I am so happy that you are there and that, uh, you love the people who are First Pres Richmond, and I look forward to knowing them and sharing this experience with them as well. Yes, and it's so fun to get people that you love together. So now you all can love yes. each other. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Pam. We will see you soon. All right. And thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, make sure to register for the gathering. We hope you'll be joining us. Bye. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>